my topic is parental rights in medical decision making. And I do have some slides, that's what we're trying to get up uh, in front of you. But one of the things I want to emphasize for you is at the outset, I know you've heard about philosophical basis of parental rights, you've heard some about the law. But what I want to emphasize is this, what we're seeing right now, the conflicts that are arising in terms of medical care and parental rights, really come down to a, a conflict of anthropologies, a different vision of, of the human person, one that is, on the, on the one hand, a Christian vision, very, and a natural law vision, and that's really where our society has built so much of its institutions, its structures, um, our understandings of how things should be. And yet, since the sexual revolution, but particularly at warp speed in the last 10 to 15 years, we have another anthropology that has effectively become the new religion. And so what this means is that when you walk into a doctor's office, when you walk into a hospital, when you're um, dealing with a counselor, the individual may be a really good person, but they have an awful lot of pressures that are coming to bear from institutional forces, from their own profession, new ethics requirements that go against Christian anthropology. And these pressures are uh, leading many of them to do things that are problematic. But to frame it a little bit more concretely, for in Christian anthropology, we know the person is relational, right? That's our fundamental sense of who we are. Because from the first moment of our existence, we're in relationship with God. We are never not in relationship. So we're in relationship with God. We're also born into a family. And that relationship, that relationality, defines who we are. And it defines the most significant uh, human relationships in our lives. We also know, as, as a matter of Christian anthropology, that when we're striving for the good, the good is defined in terms of understanding human nature, who we are, and what we're called to, eternal life beyond pleasure, beyond the moment. So that's Christian anthropology, but the current anthropology that we're seeing pushed through education, but uh, alarmingly through medicine, is a vision of the person as an individual, autonomous, that your humanity is fulfilled when you are most autonomous, when you're exercising your, your personal agency unfettered, by burdens, which could be relationships or morals or religion, it looks at the child as an emerging adult who can be oppressed by religion, by patriarchy. When people say patriarchy, think family, because that's really what, what is being targeted here. So this anthropology that's being promoted through medicine looks at the child as an individual. It looks at the child's good as not eternal life, not the whole child, but managing disease, or maximizing personal fulfillment, pleasure, sort of self-actualization, uh, individual interests, sex. A lot of people just think sex is it. Uh, 
That's a radically different vision of the person. And it means how a child is treated, how a family is treated when they come into a medical setting is going to be radically different. So uh, the first thing to realize about parental rights in medical decision making is first just key in on parental rights. We don't get them from the state. We don't get them from uh, the Supreme Court. We get them by virtue of our relationships by God. They're God-given rights. Why? Because we have a responsibility. And if you haven't read uh, Melissa Michella, she's a philosopher who's written extensively on this. She does a really good job of um, unpacking the philosophical bases for parental rights, really rooting it in that relationship of responsibility. Parents have rights because we have responsibilities, because we have duties. It's also true, certainly, that we, uh, because our children, we give birth to our children or we raise our children, we have a, a good sense of what's in their best interests. But that's not at the heart of it. The heart of it is because we are parents, we have that responsibility and therefore we have these rights. So we see, certainly in natural law and in the faith, uh, this recognition, this, this awareness of where we get our parental rights. But in the US, we have had some very good cases, now almost 100 years old, acknowledging parental rights, recognizing them as fundamental, the fundamental right to um, raise and, and care and educate and care for your children. And it's great language. There are additional cases over the, again, more recently, that talk about the idea that parents should be presumed to be fit parents, recognizing that, that the parental right precedes the state. So again, these are good words, good language. But as I'll unpack in a couple of minutes, there are also some very worrying trends. So on a, on a global level, or not global, but a, a big picture level within the US, it's certainly true that parental rights are protected. And many states have very good parental rights statutes. I'm from Virginia, and we have an excellent one but it has not prevented schools from starting kids on the path to gender transition, it has not prevented uh, physicians or counselors from keeping secrets from parents about what's going on with their kids. So we have to ask why, what is it that's going on here? All right, so even though we've got this grounding in our God-given rights, natural law, we have some great language in Supreme Court cases, about parental rights, we have some strong statutes in individual states, something's wrong. Something's wrong because parental rights in reality are not being respected within the medical setting. A lot of parents only discover this too late because we're sort of lulled into a false sense of security. On the one hand, uh, many of you probably followed the Charlie Gard case over in the UK which was just a travesty. The parents were really shut out from that. There are some similar cases that have occurred here in the US. Some of them drew headlines, some less so. But the common, um, what, was, what was in common about those, those headline cases is they almost always involved a very dire illness, uh, a lot of expensive care, 
an uncertain uh, future or outcome, disputes among the physicians about what's the best course of treatment or whether treatment could even continue to occur. So you have that going on. And that helps shape our view of when parental rights might be challenged. But then we also have the very practical situation of most of us who are parents, where you send your kids to school and you get a call from the school nurse. I need your permission. He's got a headache. Can I give him a Tylenol? And you go in and you take your child in for vaccines and you have to sign three different papers. And so we get used to our consent being asked for all sorts of minor things. And that sort of can lull us into a false sense of security that, well, of course, if any physician is going to treat my child, they were, they're going to have to talk to me first. They're going to have to ask my permission that I have some control here. Unfortunately, that's not really what happens once your kids hit adolescence. Because adolescence has been carved out over the past 25, 30 years, uh, just as a space in which parents' rights have been steadily eroded. And I'm going to talk about some particulars about that. The Society of Adolescent Medicine um, put out, it, it was started, I want to say, in the late 70s, early 80s. But by 2004, they put out a policy document where they said, they congratulated themselves, saying, it is now possible for adolescents to have confidential care about sexuality, reproductive rights, uh, mental health care, drug abuse, all those things. And that was considered a policy gain, a win. And we'll talk about some of the justifications for why they were able to push that through. But in reality, for the past 20, 25 years, the ability of parents to guide their kids during the most vulnerable times of their lives, adolescence, has been severely restricted. Unless you have a very cooperative kid and there's no conflict, or you find a Christian doctor and you're completely on the same wavelength. But if you're going to Kaiser Permanente, for example, all bets are off. If you're going to a teaching hospital, a secular teaching hospital, all bets are off. In fact, uh, one of my siblings uses University of Pittsburgh as uh, some of their medical providers. And by the time the kids are 12 years old, she is locked out of their medical records. And again, we'll talk about why that is. But I want to just headline for you that one reason why we're sort of late to the game, I think, in terms of really focusing on the need to fight for parental rights within the medical setting is because for most parents, that experience is unchallenged until you hit adolescence. And then all of a sudden, if it's your kid who's having trouble, then you, parent, are the problem if you are trying to, to interject yourself into the doctor-patient relationship. So some things to know that, generally speaking, as uh, in the modern era of medicine, as we shifted from sort of a paternalistic view of medicine where doctors would just imperiously tell patients, I wasn't around then, but this is what I understand, doctors would just um, tell patients what they needed to do. And, patient, and people were very deferential. In fact, I remember seeing that with my in-laws. They were, they were older, 
and just extremely deferential. They would never challenge what the doctor would advise because that wasn't how they were brought up. You, you just didn't do that. You, you knew he was the expert and you, you didn't challenge that. However, tort law introduced some changes because in tort, tort is the claims for personal injury, you have a right not to have people do things to your body without your consent. And so uh, over the past 40, 50 years, we've had a very robust development of um, informed consent as the basis for medical care with the idea that assuming someone has the capacity to consent, they need to have the kind of knowledge that will allow them to make a meaningful decision. They need to be told and informed uh, what the condition is, what the outcome might be, what the potential treatment that's being recommended will entail, whether there are alternatives and whether there are risks. Those are the kinds of things that are now part of sort of standard informed consent protocols or methods uh, in dealing particularly with adults. It gets to be much more complicated when you're dealing with minors. But just as an aside, if you don't read those informed consent documents, you're doing yourself a disservice. Sometimes you don't have a choice. You have to have a particular surgery. You have to take a particular medicine. But you need to understand, because the lawyers are very careful when they write those documents, they're very careful about what they put in. And you'll, it, depending on how communicative your doctor has been, you may get uh, some surprises there. So, uh, so that's what informed consent is. But what about minors, right? Minors are too young. They don't have contractual capacity, for one. We don't let minors go buy a house. If they did, you know, we'd know they couldn't pay for it. We don't let them do all sorts of things because they're considered to be too immature, to be lacking the capacity to have long-range, mature kinds of judgment, the kind of judgment you would want someone to have to really weigh serious things, serious risks, serious situations. So parents. Parents are presumed to be able to consent to give permission for medical care for minors. But what's happened is, in adolescent medicine, that general rule has been almost swallowed up by the exceptions. And the exceptions started or gained real ground during the litigation that followed from the contraception decisions and the abortion decisions, where we created this fiction, not only that a woman has a right to an abortion and that that's all it is, it's a medical, a matter of health, medical procedure, but that somehow a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old girl is a mature woman who has a constitutional right to an abortion that can never be questioned. And there have been, there, the jurisprudence is tangled. There are um, some, uh, there, there's an opportunity for parents to receive notice. Some states have consent provisions, but always with an escape hatch if the child is, quote, a mature minor, considered to be old enough to appreciate what's happening and to make a judgment and make that decision. Out of that, what we've seen is an expansion of these so-called sensitive issues. So that it's not just contraception, it's not just abortion. 
It's STIs, sexually transmitted infections. It's mental health care. It's substance use counseling. And now more recently, it has to do with, quote, gender care. Um, also, all these categories have been expanded, and I'll go into that in more detail. But one thing to realize is that aside from Supreme Court jurisprudence and those big cases about parents' fundamental rights, most of the law governing parental rights and, and, and minors' rights to consent is a matter of state law, that the states have legislated many of these particular subject matter areas. And one of the questions to keep in mind, particularly as I go through this, is what on earth were we thinking that we allowed laws to be passed? So that, for example, in the US, it's been the case since the late 70s that nearly all, or at least by the 80s, nearly all states allow children as young as 12 to consent to sexually transmitted infection testing and treatment. 12, right? There's no state that has sexual consent, the ability to uh, consent to sexual involvement set that low. And you'd be surprised how high the ages are. In some states, it's still 18. Most of them are 16, a few are 15, some 17. But we have this strange thing that way back when, when Planned Parenthood and the abortion and contraception industry were looking out at the future and looking at their future clients and how they were going to have access to that, they pushed through a lot of these provisions that will allow, again, treatment for STIs and, and sort of uh, piggybacking off of the contraception and abortion issue. So let's get into a few of the specifics here. All right, so what, what's the net of this? It means that practically speaking, if you're a parent, your parental rights are really at risk. And most particularly, they're put at risk in, within the context of the very relationships that you rely on the most. Your child's pediatrician, your child's specialist, uh, your child's counselor, for, for many people who are lower income, there has been just a, a, an amazing, amazingly awful growth in school-based health clinics. And they're, again, typically located in areas where people have more limited access either to income or to, um, to get to medical care. That's, that's sort of the rationale. And some of it's good providing kids with dental care, providing them with, with basic uh, vaccines and, and things like that. But once those school-based health clinics are located in the school, or there's a relationship established through the school to community health providers, then it's a different matter, because parents will be dutifully sent home a, a permission slip sign if you want your child to be able to be treated at the school-based health clinic. Usually there's a little asterisk at the bottom that says this does not cover sensitive issues or reproductive rights because those are governed by other laws. Most parents don't realize that. They think again, they assume because they're getting a call, your kid showed up at the nurse's office with a strep throat or with a sore throat, can we do a strep test? They presume that that kind of communication and that request for consent 
is going to be consistent down the line. And it's not. It's not. And, and I can tell you horror stories of kids literally being taken from the schools to a clinic, to a, um, abortion providers, places, because they don't need consent. They don't need consent. But parents will have no idea. And in fact, this has been, uh, we've seen an uptick, at least in, in my view, over the past five to 10 years of medical ethicists writing very seriously and, and long papers and really wrestling with things, all to make the case that when parents disagree with a child about what their care should be, particularly in certain sensitive issues, doctors should feel free to just go with what the child wants, and to consider state intervention when, if they feel they can make the case that the parent's refusal or the child's fear of involving the parents because they say, oh, my parents are going to kill me, that they can make the case that that's neglect or harm and involve uh, child protective services. So we've seen just sort of an unabashed um, promotion of this increasingly through the medical ethics literature. That's just one article that I am showing here, but there are numerous articles. And the gender issue has really uh, put a lot of this into overdrive. And we've also seen more rhetoric too. And this is interesting, especially with the COVID issue. We're seeing a lot of mainstream media pushback to the idea that parents should have any say at all. Again, particularly with teenagers. Uh, I'm from Virginia, and there's a very hot governor's race going on, and, and we're hoping and praying that the good guy wins. But the, uh, the candidate, Terry McAuliffe, who was a former governor, actually came out in the middle of a debate and said parents do not have the right to decide what their children should, should see in the school or to pull books off the, the shelf because one parent went to a school board meeting and literally read out loud and showed pictures of some of the books that were in the school library at middle school level in some schools, mostly high school, but some middle school, that were utterly pornographic and that were normalizing adult-child sexual interactions. You know, and, and she was shut down, right? They didn't want her to read that at the school board meeting, and yet it's fine for that to be in the school library. So because of COVID, because of things like this, we're hearing more just in the media space, which I think is designed to make parents second guess their instincts. Their natural instincts are to protect their children, to want to know what's going on, and yet, it's, it's like the shot across the bow. Keep your head down. What do you know? Let the experts decide. Don't get in the middle of it. That's, that's not your role. Just support. So it doesn't help either that among uh, the mainstream physicians groups, are almost mainstream medicine, the establishment medical groups, are almost all aligned with this idea that adolescents need confidentiality that that's, that is the, uh, the requirement for there to be proper medical care for adolescents in a whole range of things. So just one thing to realize that I have learned in working on the gender ideology issue, you know, I used to have a lot of respect when I'd hear, oh, the AMA said this. 
Well, it turns out that most of these groups are political advocacy groups and that most of their statements are not the kinds of things where they gather all the research and someone writes a proposal and all the members of the association kind of weigh it and, and weigh in. Not at all. They have these small little committees that have an interest, your sex and gender minority group or um, HIV group or whatever it is, who are writing the statements, which are then put out on behalf of these major medical organizations. But then in the media, the narrative is that these, uh, that these groups have supported this, that if you're going against what these groups are saying, you're going against mainstream medicine, you're going against science, which is just not true. So I, okay, all right, so, a few things, the American Academy of Pediatrics has a specific document on informed consent, and they talk about um, shared decision-making. The ideal would be to bring in an adolescent because they are a future adult who's going to have to make their own medical decisions, so you want to engage them, uh, which all sounds nice, except that they also support this idea of sensitive issues and, and confidentiality. So let's talk about sensitive issues. Uh, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has some advice to their own practitioners about how you engage adolescents in a confidential manner. One, you have to let them know that in an emergency, we may have to reveal something. You know, if you've got something life-threatening or if um, this is true for counselors, if someone's suicidal, they may have to reveal that. But they also talk to the, the young person about the rationale. You are maturing. You are going to be a decision maker. It's really important for you to be involved in this process. Okay, true enough. We want our adolescents to be learning but they're given more responsibility than they have the emotional maturity to handle or the intellectual knowledge. But the, the, uh, as you can see in this guidance, they make kind of a big deal about this idea of establishing rapport with the adolescent, a relationship of trust, and that requires time alone. And you will hear that across specialties, pediatricians, We'll start doing that when a child is uh, close to puberty, not even necessarily puberty. They'll tell the parent, uh, it's, you know, I'd really like to just talk to them. It's, it's, we have just, a, there's an acronym, HEADS, where they ask them about how things are at home, how school's going, and all that kind of stuff. Sounds very benign in the beginning. But here's the thing, if you as a parent give your permission for the doctor to engage in that confidential conversation, and you walk out of the room voluntarily, under HIPAA, you do not have the rights to the records of those particular conversations, because you have voluntarily given that over to a confidential relationship. And are parents ever told that? No, not at all. So that's just an example then about um, ACOG. But let me go through a couple of the basics on, on different subject areas. So abortion, we know, is very convoluted. I think one of the interesting things, if, um, if Roe is overturned or severely limited 
in, it's going to be argued this fall, and then presumably a de, um, decision will come down in the Dobbs case probably in June. I see an opening to be able to push back on some of this adolescent autonomy that really was um, elevated as a way to facilitate the abortion industry and the contraceptive industry. So you can see basically um, any age can consent in two states. Okay, any age, no parental involvement. That means if you have an 11-year-old who is pregnant and some adult is bringing her because she wants an abortion, no one has to call the parents. Why? Because in those two states, she's got, she's mature. She's, she's got that uh, permission. So anyway, it's, it's a, sort of a patchwork. And there's one thing to realize about the whole parental rights issue. When you look at the states, there's no logic. It's very much a battle of what has happened on the state level and what people are able to get. And so you see a lot of inconsistencies. Contraception, again. Uh, and Guttmacher updates their website about once a month to, to keep all of these things current. So it's, it's not bad to see what the other side is saying. Uh, one thing to note here on the contraception, if you look at that last line where it says, no relevant case law. Well, one thing that happens uh, when you read the literature within the medical community, the journal articles and the advisory opinions by the American Academy of Pediatrics or ACOG or whatever, they consistently say where the law is silent, it's up to your discretion. Okay, so not it's up to the parent. You're, you're already out of there. It's up to the physician to decide whether they're going to bring in the parent or notify the parent. So, you know, we talk about having gotten rid of this paternalistic attitude in medicine, and yet I see it as a new paternalism. It's just parents are out. It's just the, the almighty doctor is empowered to decide whether parents get to be involved. So if it's not the courts, if it's not the legislatures, it's the physician. Prenatal care, again, you know, it, it kind of boggles the mind, especially this North Dakota, you need, um, the minor can consent for prenatal care in that first trimester, but after that you need parental consent. What's that about? You know, I, I wonder if that's just, a way to encourage them, they can keep it secret while they're still within the time frame when they can get an abortion. You know, and anyway, so STI services. I want to spend a little bit of time on this because it has proven to be the the proverbial nose, camel's nose under the tent. So as I mentioned earlier, in all the states and DC, young people can consent to their own STI testing and treatment, typically down to the age of 12. So again, think of what that means for a child to have, uh, to need STI testing. They're involved in a sexual relationship before they're old enough to give consent. And yet by law, we're saying we're not getting the parents involved. How did that come about? Well, it came about because at the time, when in the wake of the sexual revolution, STI numbers start to, to rise rapidly. And so, Someone did a, a very poor survey of adolescents saying, would you be more likely to get testing or treatment if your parents knew or if that you could get confidential care? Oh, confidential care. It's, 
adolescent speculation about what they might do in the future with no ties to whether it's a better outcome. But research that thin was put forward in order to justify those early laws saying as a public health matter, we can't have people with STIs having sex and spreading it everywhere. We've got to do something. So what's the way to maximize testing and treatment? Aha, it's to empower young people to go in and do it on their own. Well, here we are, 40 years later, the STI rates are higher than ever. They've skyrocketed. And we have the odd situation where uh, still no one is asking for the medical benefit. No one is saying, has this made kids healthier? Has this helped kids follow through on their treatment for STIs? Has this helped reduce the amount of sexual risk-taking among adolescents? Nobody's asking those questions. Nobody's revisiting those. Instead, what we're seeing is an effort to expand what was done on the STI level to include all sorts of other things. Again, sort of the sensitive issues. So uh, now, in many states, there are specific inclusions. I'll come back to vaccines in a minute. Um, well, actually, hold the thought on HIV. I'll get back to that in a minute. But let me just say a word about vaccines. So vaccines, just like STIs, use that public health justification, right? It's important. We got to get everyone vaccinated. So adolescents, some people have put forward research showing adolescents have cognitive capacity to understand, at least not when they're not in emotional turmoil, they can understand basic risks and benefits. And on that basis, they say, see, a 13-year-old is just as capable as an adult of appreciating risks and benefits. However, that, that little asterisk, when they're not under emotional stress, totally ignores the reality of teenage life, right? Especially if you're talking about uh, whether it's COVID and the hysteria, and we've seen what has happened with the mental health of young people. But when you're talking about STIs and all, you know, sexual and reproductive health care, those sorts of things, those are very emotional things. But it, it was just a reason that was uh, meant to be almost like a placeholder, just good enough to satisfy that claim. So in, in the District of Columbia, you have one of the most egregious laws where they passed a law saying kids as young as 11 can consent to vaccines. But they also included a provision that said that if the parents have objected, in other words, they've exercised a religious objection, and they, they don't want their kid to be vaccinated, and they got that approval that they, their kid didn't need a particular vaccine, that if the child shows up at a vaccine clinic the physicians vaccinate the child, but do an end run around the parents and send that notification directly to the school or directly to the health department, not to the insurance, not to the parent. So even in cases where it's known that the parents do not want that child to have that particular vaccine, the law and the arrogance, really, of a medical community that thinks they know better for our kids has found an end run around that. And again, where's, where's the outcry? Uh, similar thing, Washington now has 
uh, declared gender as a sensitive issue, and uh, I think Michelle Curtell is going to talk more about that later. But let me talk about one particular way that every child is at risk in, in the offices of the people you trust most. And that's when they go for their well visits or their screening visits. And I, one thing I'll say, too, is that um, on that ACOG slide, it talked about justifying the need for time alone on the basis of building up trust and establishing a rapport between physician and teenager as if there's going to be a continuing, ongoing, deep relationship. In reality, that's not what happens, particularly when people are uh, using managed care and things like that. They don't have ongoing, long, it's not like when I was, when I was a kid, we had a, um, a family pediatrician who my mom would, I was one of 10, would bring us over at the time, I think there were only six of us. He had an office in his house, we'd all go over there. Mom was talking to you know, his wife, who was the nurse, and it was an ongoing relationship for probably 10 or 15 years. You don't have that anymore, where someone knows the family, sees them in the community, sees them at church, and, and is invested in those kids long term and shares the values, or at least understands the values of the parents. That's not the typical situation here. So the idea is that's being promoted by the American Academy of Pediatrics, among others, as well as different specialist groups, is that one, you need time alone with adolescents. That's sort of like put it out there. Make the parents feel guilty if they want to be in there. Or they're not trusting their kids, or they're going to embarrass their kids. Mom, I'm fine. Why don't you know? Why don't you leave? But to get that time alone and to use ordinary visits, not when a kid comes in because they're embarrassed and they think they're pregnant, or they think they could have an STI, or they're, you know, maybe they're, they've been taking laxatives or diet pills or whatever. Not on problem situations, but every time a child comes in, that physicians are being encouraged to see those as opportunities to screen for these particular issues, whether it's sex, gender, drugs, depression, counseling, you know, whatever, whatever might be the case. So sports physicals, every kid, or school physicals, every kid needs one. So beware, if you're banished from the room, there's a reason, because that's when they're, they have all sorts of questions to ask. So this confidentiality uh, is an interesting thing, because it's supposed to be respecting the emerging autonomy of the adolescent, right? Which it's interesting that the American Academy of Pediatrics uses that phrase a lot, the emerging autonomy, because the Convention on the Rights of the Child, a UN document, which the US has not signed, talks about empowering adolescents by taking into account the evolving capacities of the child. Now, we don't have in our statutes and in Supreme Court uh, cases that kind of language. That's been injected by the medical community. It's a, it's a different concept, but again, conditioning good faith physicians, good faith healthcare workers, as well as conditioning parents that, oh yeah, as my kid's getting older, I'm supposed to recede to the background. Instead of realizing, no, you need to be engaged. You need to be engaged. Kids need more information, but you need to be engaged. So this was a, uh, from a presentation done by Fenway, which is the gender clinic 
one of the major ones up in Boston. But this kind of slide is typical. So the American Academy of Pediatrics for the past several years has had talks about, uh, to, given to physicians and, and people who are attending their conference, talks specifically about how to maximize time alone, how to be able to introduce these sensitive subjects. How do you raise gender? How do you raise sex? Uh, so there's specific instruction. So don't think this, this is not a figment of my imagination. This is not conspiracy theory. This is what they're doing. This is a programmatic plan because they think it's better, because they think they know what's better for your child, according to their anthropology, not according to yours. So again, just giving them that advice. Here's what to do. Well, here are some of the questions that Fenway suggests. Again, for adolescents, sexual health assessment, asking kids these questions. Regardless of whether the kid is sexually active, you're supposed to open the conversation, or regardless of whether the kid is admitted, they're sort of skeptics. They assume every kid is, is having sex, and therefore you have to presume it and treat it like it's normal. Everything has to be normalized. So just imagine a kid gets these kinds of questions. A strong kid might think, what the heck? You know, and, and there's actually good research that shows that adolescents, particularly adolescent girls, are very uncomfortable with this time alone. They don't particularly like time alone with the, the pediatrician because they don't want the prying questions, they don't want their parents asking them you know, what they were asked, and they just feel uncomfortable talking about some of these things. And interestingly, in a, um, another study, they interviewed parents about their view towards giving adolescents confidentiality. And they were making the case that this is better for adolescents because there's more disclosure on the part of adolescents if they think parents are not gonna know. Which again, is very thin research. It's like, if a kid threatens something, good parenting says you don't do something because a kid threatens to do something. It's, this is sort of like that, it's like, bad medicine to say, oh my gosh, the kid says they're not going to get their, their issues treated if we tell their parents, so we're not going to tell their parents. You know, I, there was a school principal who was talking about how um, in the school context, he has kids all the time say, don't tell my parents when the kid fails a class or gets into trouble. And yet by law, they have to. But by law, they don't have to tell parents about what's happening with their kids in a medical sense. So this is actually a slide that I took just a couple of weeks ago from a presentation by Fenway. Um, it, it dealt with adolescent gender care. But again, the idea is every child should be screened for gender issues. So every child, they have to mark are you boy, girl, or now a lot of pediatrics practices are putting you know, other or X or let, letting the child specify their sex and their gender identity separately so they track that. All of which says to a kid, this is expected, this is normal, and that's, that's why they're doing it. So again, uh, inviting physicians to show kids a picture, to explain who they are. This is 
gender ideology. This is a radical anthropology, completely at odds with Christian anthropology. And yet this is what good faith physicians are being told is the way to establish a rapport, to do what they should be doing, to, to really screen out problematic cases. And here are some things you might ask. And with the parent and child separate, though I will tell you, she emphasized that in the, in the workshop that she was giving. But again, can you imagine, um, I, I think I've said this before, both of my girls, they, I have two girls and five boys, they're now young adults, and, but my girls were out there with the boys all the time. If you had asked them, do you feel more like a girl or boy? I think they would have like wondered, well, I play with the boys all the time, or I like doing what they're doing. You know, what an odd thing to say. You really are male or female. Let's find what's good about that. Let's help you explore that, how you're gonna live that out. But there's a reality here, folks. And, and yet, this is how you're, these physicians are encouraged to serve that up to the vulnerable child sitting in front of them, who has a natural deference to authority, to the expert in the room, wondering, especially kids who are insecure, if they're asking me if I really do feel like a girl, maybe I don't, maybe, I, maybe I'm not. Maybe there's something about me, why is she asking me that question? You know, it's, it's such a manipulative thing to do to vulnerable kids. And then again, from her slide, saying, who should you screen? Who should you give a gender screening to? All children, at all ages, et cetera, et cetera. And then certainly when they come in for specific things. And there was a, a medical provider who was on the, the uh, webinar who said, you know, we don't have enough time really to do all the things we're supposed to do. And you're saying we should do this gender screening. And she said, yeah, doesn't, you know, if you can't do it every time, just rotate it in. But just making this part of standard medicine, which is destabilizing this younger generation of kids. So this is all complicated by HIPAA. HIPAA is a good law in the sense that it, it made, gave patients the right to their own medical information. Right, which you ought to have. If you're being treated, you ought, to, you ought to know what the diagnosis is, what the treatment notes are, you ought to have your images. That's, that should be yours, that's a good thing. But it's, it is very restrictive, as anyone who's had a kid go to college knows, or a kid who turns 18 and all of a sudden you're, you're um, not told anything. But we're seeing sort of um, mission creep, you know, this idea of confidentiality and privacy for the adolescent, even though it's not, not supposed to be uh, in here, it says this minors have a personal representative, presumably the parent. But it also lists case, cases when the parents are not to be considered personal representatives. When the kid says, no, my mom's not my personal representative. In other words, mom can't access my information, which is why when you go to get records, it has to, and your kid's over 18, has to be a, a request initiated by the kid. Um, but more particularly, that exception, which is big enough to drive a truck through, that idea that if parents voluntarily, when the physician asks for time alone, voluntarily agrees to them having that confidential conversation, you don't have rights to that care either. 
I mean, to those records either. Again, maybe some physicians would go ahead and give it to you, but according to the law, they don't have to. And in the, um, some of the guidelines for pediatricians on this, there's a lot, and family practice, there's a lot of discussion going on right now because of improvements to electronic health records. And there's been an effort um, initiated by parents of kids who are disabled or who have chronic illnesses or who have uh, different conditions, maybe autism, where they're really not able to manage their own health care. So there's been an emphasis to make that more possible for parents to have that permission and, and to get in there and manage their kids' care. But that's raised all the red flags for those who, uh, whose primary concern is to make sure that kids can have sex, can declare whatever gender identity they want, they can do whatever they want, and parents shouldn't know, because parents might stop them, because parents might make them feel guilty. Parents might have a moralistic viewpoint to layer on top of that. And so uh, the discussions have, concerned, have been about, well, how do we ensure with these electronic health records? We want kids to get used to going online. How do we ensure that parents are not just going to uh, get their kids' login information and get all of the information? And so what they've, uh, they've cautioned physicians be on the lookout if you see a parent who's trying to coerce a kid into getting their login information, red flag. But also, some of the, some of the software is um, creating it so there are built-in firewalls, basically, so that some kinds of information never is exposed. It's never even obvious that you had that conversation. So they're trying to make it so that um, a kid won't be unintentionally outed, in other words, or exposed, whatever their, their vulnerable situation is. Now just think about that for a second. We're talking about minors, about kids who by definition are not old enough to vote, are not old enough to do all sorts of things, you know, enter into a legal contract. And yet we're saying that they should, they should be empowered to make all these decisions that will have lifelong consequences in many cases. And parents, the ones who are going to be there for the long haul, unlike the medical provider in the clinic for whom this is just another kid that they've got to protect their confidentiality and, and you know, get them out the door, make sure they're having safe sex, parents are in it for the long haul. Parents are the ones who have the context, who know a child's particular vulnerabilities, who know their medical history, who are going to be able to help a child address these problems. And yet, the presumption is that parents should be shut out. Again, sort of the rationale being a child's emerging autonomy. But the other one that you often see is, well, some kids will be at risk of harm if their parents find out. That's a big one in terms of HIV testing, STI testing, even sexual activity. Um, and it's put out there and always said very solemnly, some kids are going to be at risk of harm, and then everyone backs off. It's like, yeah, that's true. Yeah, some kids are in really bad situations. But we have a mechanism for that. We report kids who are vulnerable, who are being abused. The law specifically says that parents don't have to prove their fitness, that their, their parental rights 
can only be limited if there's evidence of neglect or evidence of harm. That's sort of the general law, but that's not what's happening here. The discussion goes, well, some, you know, if these religious and conservative families, if they find out that this kid is gay and having gay sex, or this girl is pregnant, these kids are at risk of harm. So therefore, we have a blanket rule. We're not gonna tell anybody. And the fact is, about two-thirds of, of kids, particularly those who get pregnant, end up telling their parents whether they have an abortion or, or give birth. Regardless, you know, all those other kids who don't eventually tell their parents, they need their parents. And if the parents are abusive or are going to harm them, we know what to do about that. But instead, we're indicting all parents who have a different philosophical viewpoint. And we're saying, we're gonna cut off their parental rights because some parent out there somewhere might be abusive to a kid. If you're not on board with the program, we don't want your participation here. So uh, this was the act that I referenced where they're, they're trying to improve accessibility for parents of kids with chronic things, but, but also not blow the doors off. The other thing that we're seeing besides sensitive issues is that some populations are being um, sort of given a, given a pass where if you are a sex and gender minority, if you are a kid at risk of HIV, the physicians and physicians groups feel empowered even more so to cut the parents out. Whether it's in doing research, whether it's in finding ways to justify uh, giving HIV meds or HIV testing. So again, you have that STI exception that's written statutorily. Most of the statutes, state statutes, do not specifically talk about HIV. They don't necessarily include it. Some of them are specific, but many of them are not. And what's happening in the medical profession is they're saying, well, we're gonna read that broadly. We're gonna read STI treatment and, and testing to include HIV. And you might say, okay, well, that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, we want people to know. But again, cutting parents out of that, if you have a 13-year-old boy who tests positive for HIV, and they are finding some at that age, a parent needs to know. And if a parent is neglectful, someone else needs to know. But instead, we're seeing this effort to expand these uh, expand the boundaries for these sensitive populations, even though the, the treatments are completely disproportionate there. So we have uh, a standard STI can be treated with two weeks of antibiotics. PrEP, or the, uh, the antiviral treatments for HIV, have major consequences on the body. It's nothing similar, and yet it's being treated as if it is. So I've got to wrap up here, but let me um, get to an, an action item here. One, check your own assumptions. Why are we so deferential towards experts? Why do we presume that the experts had the right to decide things about our children's medical care without our own involvement? That should trouble us. Uh, we know the Planned Parenthood did that intentionally, and some of the courts are following along. Most parents want to be informed. They want to know what's going on with their kids, even if they're disappointed, they're worried, you know, there's tension. They want to know and they want to do the right thing. So what, what do we need to do? 
One, we need to be attentive to legislation. You know, this is no longer the era when 14-year-olds could get married or when society looked the other way at sexual abuse of children. We're much more aware of that. It's a good time to say, why are we saying no parental involvement for STIs at age 12? That, that makes no sense. You know, and to litigate some of these things, but mostly to raise the awareness of other parents and physicians and to push back, be the parent who's in the room, tell your kid, I'm not leaving, you know, and have that conversation ahead of time. But don't cede your rights. Be there so that you can do the right thing for your kids. And then, of course, pray. As a mom, I've learned um, the, the best prayer is always, Lord, make up for my failings. Mother Mary, you know, be there and mother my kids in the way that I can't. And, I, <laughs> you know, thanks be to God. God's grace is beautiful and very powerful. So don't cede your parental rights to anyone. Being a parent is a great thing. Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you.